Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox. And I'm Lori Sox. And today we're joined again by Vaish Sarati, here to talk to us about functional nutrition. Oh, we love Vaish. Vaish introduced us to assuming competence, which was a life-changing shift in word and thought. And similarly, Vaish sheds light on nutrition and talks about gut health. One of the things I love about our conversations with Vaish is that she reminds me that the diagnosis is a characteristic, a portion, not the sum total of our children. So welcome, Vaish Sarati. Hello, Vaish. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Laurie. How are you? Good morning. It's so nice to see you again. Yes, good morning. Same here. Well, we had such a great conversation with you last time, and we've been having you and Sid and your family in our thoughts and so many things we've incorporated into our lives from that conversation, honestly. Just assuming ability, assuming intelligence. One thing I realized that when I applied that to every relationship, it made everything better. Do you know? Like if I just assume that in every person that they're able. And we just had a conversation and and added on and said, assuming brilliance. (laughs) Why not? Yeah, it makes it difficult to dislike people and hate people once you start assuming that. It does get inconvenient after a while when you kind of want to not like someone. But if you start with that paradigm, it's it's hard to hardcore dislike people. Yeah, it really does. And it and it helps too with just um, talking about Liam. Now we did move to a new school, which is very supportive. And the IEPs have been unlike anything we've ever known. But just going into it with that in mind... It was really great when we started to have conversations with people who were doing the same thing. Yes. Like seeing our child as a whole person and assuming their ability and not just giving the laundry list of things they can't do. Right. You know, these are the strengths and these are the weaknesses, but it was always followed up with, and this is what we're going to do to support those. The concept is a game changer. It is. Yes. It's one of those things that is, it's just like a little change of a thought and it's really so simple, but it takes hearing it to make it an actual active thing that you're doing because I can always say that yeah I don't put limits on my son or I believe in his ability but when I'm actively assuming that ability that's different you said it so well you you, you said uh, yes th- that's perfectly it it's just a switch actually so it's just it's just one switch but it but we have so many excuses holding us back from that switch but when once it's turned on it's on yeah Last time you were here, we didn't get to talk about your functional nutrition, so we wanted to come back and revisit. Yes, absolutely. And I think a, a good place to start is because you mentioned the term functional nutrition. I like to give a small example in distinguishing two terms. So we all know, I mean, actually, I was going to say we all know what nutrition is, but given that everybody's talking about, actually, probably none of us know what nutrition is, and, and I'm including, because it's just an evolving field and everybody seems to have a different spin of it. But broadly, when we think about nutrition, we think about are we getting the nutrients that we need? 
And this could be macronutrients, macro as is big, right? So which is protein, fat, and carbohydrates or micronutrients, which is all the vitamins and minerals that your body needs to function, that you need to build neurotransmitters, hormones. I mean, we don't just need micronutrients. We need both of them, micro and macronutrients. Now, the difference between nutrition and functional nutrition is, I'm going to illustrate this through an example. If you have a child that has, you know, that's not growing well, I don't like to get into diagnoses, but we could say failure to thrive, but, you know, not gaining weight, not growing well. It's a little bit more common sometimes in children with Down syndrome. If you go to a nutritionist or if somebody looks at them from a nutrition perspective, they might add more calories or they might add more protein. So they're looking at what's going in. And sometimes that might work. Sometimes that might not work. From a functional nutrition perspective, we're not just looking at what's going in, but what your body is doing with what's going in. So many children are eating similar kinds of diet, but some children are growing even with the same diagnosis and some children are not growing. Uh, Some children are not gaining weight. So simply adding proteins or calories or giving them a pediasure may not be the answer. The answer may be what's going on inside. What is specific to your child that they are not processing the food, they're not metabolizing it, they're not absorbing it it's not getting converted into what's needed for them. So by definition, immediately functional nutrition becomes very bio-individual because the question is what's going on with your child? What are you doing with the food you're eating? Or what are you not doing with the food you're eating? And so I guess the core of this matter is you, right? So what are you not doing with the food that's eating? Or what is your body not being able to do? And I got started on this because of, I mean, as with everything, because of because I was working with Sid at the time, he was actually struggling with a similar situation where he might've been about four years old and there was no change in his height or weight. And I don't remember if we talked about this last time, the concept of diagnostic overshadowing. I think we might have. I, I do think that we wanted to talk more about that. Yeah. that I'm going to write, I'm going to make a note because I, I know we wanted to talk more about that as well. Yeah. When you go to a doctor and, you know, it's like, oh, it's normal in kids with Down syndrome. Sometimes, you know, you'll see periods of plateaued growth. And you know, it's hard to know what to do when you hear something like that. But often intuitively, parents will feel like, I don't think that's right. And you can't attribute everything to a diagnosis of Down syndrome. And we'll talk about that more later. So with Sid at that time, I'd started, I started with studying nutrition and then that wasn't doing anything. And he was also struggling with other issues with severe dysregulation, which, which I can explain in a minute. And again, I don't remember if I mentioned this, but like long periods of almost maniacal laughter. And this was, he was four and a half years old and he would just sit and laugh. And oftentimes doctors would say that at least he's laughing and not crying. But if you saw him, it was, you could tell that he doesn't want to laugh. It was just this, you know, for lack of a better term, a a crazy laugh. You could tell that he wanted to stop and he couldn't stop. And it was just for, it would go on for hours. It would drive me crazy, not because I was listening to it, but because I was so helpless. I had no idea what to do. I had really no idea. It was just this child who would get sent back from school because he was just sitting and laughing, like staring into space, laughing in school too. That would be just as traumatic as hearing your child cry for that long. Absolutely. Yeah. If not more. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. At the time, I think we had one of our first visits with a local naturopath who recommended an antifungal. And this was the first time that um, I heard about yeast which is a fungus, um, you know, candida and so on, different types of yeast. But one of the metabolites of yeast, which means that when yeast eats sugar, one of the products that yeast creates is alcohol. 
there's actually, there's a syndrome where, you know, people have actually got stopped for drunk driving and all they had was severe fungal overgrowth in their gut. We're used to thrush and yeast being in the mouth for children. You know, we're used to hearing about vaginal thrush, but there's a huge majority of kids for whom in the GI tract, in the intestinal tract, there can be yeast overgrowth. And the antifungal, actually, this was just a prescription antifungal. Our naturopath gave a prescription and it went away. The laughter went away. And I was thrilled. And we didn't make any other changes in his diet because if a drug works, why would you make any changes? So then we went to India and that stopped working. Actually, we didn't have a prescription for it at the time. But um, that was like a trip from hell in my mind because we had no access to his common supplements or even access to any medication because we didn't know anybody there. It was just, you know, an annual or a biannual visit. So, and his laughter was worse because we found out later that he was sensitive to wheat and dairy. And I think it was, um, he, he was eating only wheat and dairy on that trip. Um, anyway, many things put together. Uh, what happened was this, this desperation of seeing this child struggle. He couldn't eat. And I've done so many counterintuitive things. I remember singing songs to him so he'd be distracted. And when he opened his mouth, I would feed him. And I kind of cringe at even thinking about that. And then he wouldn't want to swallow it, but I'd kind of coax him to. Now I can tell that his entire GI tract was inflamed and he was just didn't want to eat because that was painful. But I thought he needed to eat, uh, you know, to survive. And I would like do every trick and I would swing him and he'd be distracted for a moment and I would feed him. This was all in India. And it's, it's just like, when I think about it, I'm like, what was I thinking? But I don't know what else I would have done because he was just not eating. In that desperation, having nowhere else to turn, I spent the days in India just researching what this could be and why it looks like yeast symptoms were back, even though we tried an antifungal some time ago. And that was when I learned about diets and inflammation caused by diets in the GI tract. And then we kind of came back and went cold turkey on a basic anti-inflammatory diet, which is no, no gluten, no dairy, no sugar. Anyway, through about a month or so into the diet, his mood stabilized and, you know, the laughter went away. We also came back with an antifungal. And then as long as we stayed on the diet, he didn't go back to that dysregulation. But I would, I would feel so bad for him for not eating gluten and dairy. And every now and then I'd bring in a little bit. And within two days, he was like, he, he would be like another person. He couldn't, uh, not that eye contact is important, but even a little bit of the eye contact that he was making would go away. He would be sitting in a corner of a room groaning. Um, at that time, we didn't have access to communication. So he was just still, he was just, you could, you could tell like a switch had been turned off and he was like, he, he was kind of like gone. And then it would take again a few months to come back. So uh, now, well, he was four and now he's he's going to be 15. So I would say for the last 11 years, except for a very rare infraction. We've been almost 100% gluten-free, dairy-free, refined sugar-free, and he doesn't want it anymore. I mean, it's kind of a body intelligence has developed where he is very clear about the foods that work for him and the communication has developed. And we've not had an episode like that in um, maybe five, six years. Those episodes did come back, the laughter every now and then. And But by the time I had started studying, so I had tools, so I knew what to do. I knew where to go. I knew if it was the diet or we needed a quick dose of an antifungal. But yeah, that's the long answer to that question. Well, it's funny because you talked about how um, you cringe at it now, but as the parent, you thought, my son's not eating. I need to feed him. 
And in hindsight, you go, well, the reason why is because he knew what was best for his body. And we just had this discussion. It took me two or three times of Liam's behavior being he doesn't want to eat. I would say, you have to, you have to eat something, Liam. You have to have something for breakfast. We have to have, and he'd want, he loves these plantain chips and he'd want those instead. And I'd say, well, you can't have chips for breakfast. You have to have a toast or your chicken or whatever it is. In my mind, he needed to eat this balanced protein, what I saw as the meal he needed to eat. And two times it would end up at him getting sick. But it took me a while to realize that when he boycotts food, it's because he's feeling something inside his body. And Sophia did this too, where she wouldn't like have words for what was happening until it was like happening, do you know? And he's obviously feeling something where he's like, I don't want anything to go in. But it's, I don't know what it is that I- As parents, you're built to like feed your kid. You're built to feed them. Food is so important and vital. Sometimes it's the only in it's one of the main things you need to do as a parent well yeah but but sometimes i feel like when you're totally helpless like you know like during the pandemic it's like oh i can't do anything so i baked like Uh, you know what i mean like when you're totally helpless like the ability to give someone food and to give them uh nourishment that's like the the simplest uh, form of support but one of the the greatest like to feed somebody. So there's something so... We've um, talked about that where Liam goes to a birthday party and he's getting the biggest piece of cake, you know, and hopefully not getting the cake before the birthday kid, you know. <laughs> but it, but it's funny that like, well, I, I understand when you say that you were doing that is because like there's, there's so much um, guilt, right? There's yes. guilt, like there's a helplessness and a guilt that exists being a parent to any child, but especially when that communication isn't there and you're solely trying to figure it out. And it's taken me a lot this year to just go like, all right, I don't like it. I'm just going to sit here and we're going to see what happens because the other times where I pushed my agenda, it just didn't, it turned out horribly wrong. Well, I think it's important to remember that as a parent, you're trying your best, right? And then all you can do is take this information. If it's reading your kids information, how they're giving you their information, that's one thing. If it's hearing about different supplements or a, a nutritional adjustment, that that's going to happen. It's going to come in stages, but just take the information and just do your best, right? And then try, try not to feel bad about when the mistakes happen sometimes, right? Yeah. I liked when you said no effects are immediate because that's that's really sometimes hard to be patient with. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with food, that that is always the case. I mean, that's why, um, including me, people, I mean, if you have a drug that will do the work of food, you're going to choose the drug. Um, and we all know drugs come with, I mean, at least chemical, um, everything's a chemical, but, you know, pharmaceutical drugs come with side effects. And that's why and no parent wants to start their child on drugs if they can do it. But when you're desperate enough, like I was, if a drug will do it, well, a drug will do it. But to what you said about the helplessness and, you know, what to do about it, where to start. I thought the answer at the time was in research and being my background, what I did was go into every pathway that I could think of. And because it was non-speaking and he was young, it was easy for me to start a very restrictive diet protocol with him. So now I'm talking about how one can go from one end to the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of food, where he was eating only wheat and dairy and everybody said that was okay. And that's what kids eat. To me, realizing that was not okay and going crossing over to like the far end of the other side, where I was like, nope, my son will not have anything that I think of as remotely inflammatory. And and I went from one restrictive diet, which was just a 
basic anti-inflammatory to something called a GAPS diet, which does work for some kids. It's just a gut healing protocol, but it's very rigid. And, you know, he wasn't really improving that much on the diet. He was very constipated. But for me, at that time, my mind was more restriction is better. And I see many parents falling into that trap. And I remember swinging from diet to diet because in my mind, it's like, I'm going to fix my kid until I realized how ridiculous that thought was because I wasn't in the presuming competence state at that time. I wasn't, I mean, like, I didn't realize there's nothing to fix. But last time when we were talking about presuming competence, we talked about the least dangerous assumption, which is to presume competence. And in diets, I think about it as the least restrictive diet. So there is a tendency in parents like ours, especially if you're a little bit of a perfectionist type A personality, the minute you learn about diets, you just, how much more diet can I do? <laughs> and I think that's, that can become very dangerous because we lose sight of the goal. So one of the things I want to start off by saying is that nutrition is not the goal. Functional nutrition is only a means to the goal, which is learning and growing. Because when your child doesn't have a healthy gut when there's inflammation in the gut your child is uncomfortable and you can presume competence all you want but if a child is uncomfortable and miserable if if you have a fever and uh, and you're not feeling good if i try to tell you what calculus is you're going to push me away and if i start now making the assumption that you're not you know good enough for me to teach calculus that doesn't make any sense so in some ways supporting the body also comes first because if, if you're not feeling well i can't teach I, or you can't learn it's not going to happen so as much as you need to make your child feel good and then find your sweet spot and stay there, it's very easy to get sucked into the vicious cycle of more and more, I can heal my child and I'm doing air quotes because this is an audio podcast, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so I can heal is in, uh, is, is in quotes and I can fix my child. And I've been there and I see many parents that are there and Many parents reach out to me asking, can you heal my child? Can, can the autism be healed? Can you treat the Down syndrome? I'm not here to do that. And if I may say so, neither should you. Our goal is to get your child to a state of comfort where they can start learning. So keeping that in mind, that's what function and nutrition is to make sure your child has ability to absorb nutrients and feel comfortable in their body so they can, they're not stuck in, you know, any uncomfortable loops because the gut brain axis is real inflammation in the gut can cause neuroinflammation and then that they're ready to learn. Well, I think it's important for everyone to know that, yeah, this isn't a cure for anybody uh, when it comes to diagnosis of Down syndrome or autism, but it's something that we could probably all incorporate in our lives because nutrition is important for everyone now. But I want to talk about the fact that you said it's not about like assuming competence is also assuming like your child knows, even if they're not communicating, like what their body feels. So it's like assuming that they're whole. And I think that's when you just said that by, um, I'm not here to cure a diagnosis. I think part of it is for us to see our children as whole. And to stop taking on that outside view that for some reason, a diagnosis of Down syndrome or autism is less than. I, because I think that societal uh, norms, that's really kind of what they've fed us. And I, I see it starting to change. But that's a really great place to begin at just our, our children are whole, equal, worthy people 
And just like we guide any of this would be good for any of our children. Yeah, that, I'm glad you said like that. Having it's... like having good gut health, it's good for it would be good. I'm gonna go into my cabinets. It's good for every individual to have food as nutrition. So, uh, so I like that that you said that. This is just assuming the the competence. And I just wanted to stop right there on where you said about curing, because I know that when Liam was very very young, someone. Uh, asked us at a wedding, actually stopped us and asked if she could. And, and, and I always appreciate like good thoughts and prayers, but at a wedding asked us if she could pray for our son to be healed. And I was just like, he's not sick. You're <laughs> like, welcome so, the prayers. So, but thank you. It's amazing how much we hear that, right? I heard that recently from somebody is when Sid was listening to music and doing his dance, which is basically he spins like he does his version of Sufi dancing where he can spin for a really long time. He can spin for hours but somebody said that he must find music very healing and it was an innocent comment but i was like why does everything need to be healing for him can, can he-, he just enjoy it sometimes music can be healing like if i've had a really rough day there's a certain yeah you know thing that i put on but i just wanted to stop at that point for our listeners to just be like just a reminder that our kids are whole equal beings and this is just we're finding out different ways because a lot of a lot of the change and advocacy has come from within this community like you said you go to the doctor they want to give you a pill or they just do diagnostic overshadowing where, where anything that your child does is because of the diagnosis. So this is another thing, along with education, along with advocacy, along with everything else that is coming from the inside and um so I just wanted to like just take a moment to just you know just acknowledge that we're finding one more thing that can that can help on this journey. Yes, and prayers are appreciated, but for everybody, and I think not just our our kids aren't the only ones that need prayers and healing. So mm-hmm. yeah, so I think we're definitely those words healing, cure, fix, pray are a little bit overused in our community. I think that's a baseline we need to get to as a community yeah, is just, just ex- accepting our kids for who they are and knowing that that's okay. People are doing their best because of the lack of inclusion that's been in society. So that's what it comes down to is like finding inclusion and starting there so that kids grow up in an inclusive environment, 100% inclusive, including every single person, not just you know, kids with diagnosis of Down syndrome or autism, like every human together. And then we learn to just be together. And it's just an equality that will hopefully naturally grow. And that's where we learn the vocabulary. That's where we learn that we treat each other equal. Because if you take kids out and you put them in a place that's special, and that's what they call it, they need to change the name from special day class because the first word people hear is special and that's what they hold on to. And then they want to treat you special and special can be really great. There's a place for it. Well, I don't think when the word special was put into programs, it was special as in this kid's better than other kids, right? That's what would be a special day for somebody. Like it's your special day. You're the one being honored. You today, you're lifted up. I don't feel like that's, how that word was used is special, more condescending. And uh, that's my own personal view. And when it's said, it's more of a mm, special. I, I know we kind of got sidetracked there, but I think it's very important that you said that, that this is just, it's another way to support and give our children that wholeness Listen of be being themselves. Just to be, yeah. yeah. The reason that we need to be a little bit more conscious about supporting our kids are because there's some, what is the word, maybe symptoms that 
often accompanied Down syndrome that can impact your body functioning. One of these is muscle tone. Almost most kids with uh, Down syndrome have low muscle tone. And this is not just your extremities. This is not just your limbs or your face or your legs. It is your, your gut is a muscle. And when we say gut, I mean, we start from the mouth and you can think of the tube going all the way to your rectum, right? It goes from the mouth, your food pipe, your stomach, small intestine, large intestine, rectum, this whole thing. It's often considered as being outside the body because stuff comes in from the outside and stuff goes out to the outside. But since it's a muscle, it's affected by, uh, if you have low muscle tone, the movement of food through this system, through the gut is going to be affected. A lot of the movement is, is a motion called peristalsis, which is, um, if you've seen a peristaltic pump, you know, just through contraction and expansion, the food, the digested food, poop, everything moves. And if that is slowed down, you can have absorption issues, you can have breakdown issues. Now, enzymes are released from the pancreas. That's also muscle tone. Bile is released from the liver. There's so many, gallbladder, there's so many muscles involved in this whole process that from a pure muscular tone perspective, it's important to understand that digestion may be slower. Some, many children, I was going to say some children, actually, many children with Down syndrome have oral motor issues, which means the first step in digestion, which is chewing, which is actually a very important step because it, that sends signals to the rest of your digestive tract to release enzymes, to get ready for the process. And if that's not 100%, um, with my son, when he started off, that was not even 20% because he was like, uh, there was a point when I would put a broccoli in his mouth, this big broccoli, and he would swallow the whole broccoli because his, he wasn't getting the signal to chew it. And you can imagine what the digestion was like for that piece of broccoli going forward because your stomach expects a fully masticated product, right? So the point I'm trying to make is that it's important to work on chewing, but it's also important to be aware that because digestion is slower, there's a tendency for constipation. So it's important that some foods are intrinsically harder to digest, and this includes wheat and dairy. These foods are today also inflammatory. So while not every typical kid may need to be gluten and dairy free, though I do believe most people would really benefit from avoiding gluten and dairy. If you have a child with Down syndrome and they're struggling with bloating, with constipation, with acid reflux, and let's just start with these three, I think, and you know that they have oral motor issues, I think a really good start would be going off gluten and dairy. And when the movement through the GI tract is, is compromised, everything is compromised. So I think an anti-inflammatory diet, even though I don't think there's trial and you don't need that much trial and error. I think it's good to start for a few months. It, like I said, it takes time. So doing it for a week and not seeing results is doesn't mean anything. So for us, it took about three months to see results. And we every time we went back to a regular diet, the reaction is a little slower. So you're not going to immediately feel weird. It might take two to three days, and then you'll notice your child is a little different. That's an indication. And so I would definitely recommend anybody who has kids with even the slightest gut issues to go on a basic anti-inflammatory diet, tune out gluten, dairy, and refined sugar. So that is the first thing. The second thing that I would say for everybody is blood sugar balance. And your child doesn't need to have Down syndrome for you to be aware of that. If your child has low attention issues and or hyperactivity, the first thing I look at is if their breakfast has enough protein. If you have an experience, and I bet you do, of feeling hangry and emotional, like you're just having this, you've missed a meal and 
you're irritated by everything. And if somebody comes, you can't learn in that situation. You're kind of in a fight or flight mode at that point. You need food, but let's say you don't have time to get that food and you just need to get somewhere. You can imagine how irritable you've become. We've all been there, right? So we've maybe multiple times as parents, we're often in that situation where we're kind of, our blood sugar is crashed. And I'm particularly sensitive to blood sugar. But for kids, they don't know what this is, what this feeling is that they need to get food. And giving kids a sugary breakfast is like a recipe. Basically what happens, let's say they have cold cereal, you get a spike in blood sugar, which is followed by an immediate drop. Anything that peaks up is going to fall down. That downfall, if you see a child that's irritated at 11 o'clock, having outbursts or, or feeling sleepy or cranky or low energy or super high energy hyperactivity, basically this is just overall, we can clump it into a term called dysregulation then you need to address blood sugar. So two things, I'll stop here. I feel like I'm just talking too much, but blood sugar first, then an anti-inflammatory diet. I'm flipping the order because blood sugar is easy to address. Unlike an anti-inflammatory diet, it takes you one day to see the results. You start with a, a reasonably high protein breakfast. If your child is getting cranky around 11 or two, you know that it's the food. So it's either the breakfast or the lunch or both. So just increase the protein, lower the sugar of those two meals. And if you see results, then that's the first thing I always change. Then long-term is moving to an anti-inflammatory diet. That works for everybody. And then if you still need work, then you can customize. But you can, you can maybe talk to a doctor and see. There's actually many things that people can do, but, and we can talk about them if you have specific questions. But these two, I feel like everybody, it's a blood sugar is a such balance is such a low hanging fruit. All you need to do is fix breakfast to start with and have enough protein and fat and fiber in your breakfast. Basically just a whole food breakfast. Let's let's simplify it. A whole food breakfast, somewhat high in protein, and then we're good. Can you define uh, refined sugar and whole food for the listeners? Yeah. Refined sugar is any sugar that doesn't come directly from a plant. It's easier for me to say what is not refined sugar. So what sugars I, I'm you know, I would say that are actually good additions to your diet are number one, raw honey, things like maple syrup, coconut sugar, raw honey being number one. It's like a, it's basically a superfood at this point. It's got so much going for it. I recently read a study that raw honey is actually anti-diabetic, even though it's a sugar in itself in a way. It actually has some anti-diabetic properties. It has some neuroprotective properties. You could actually like think of any condition and put raw honey and do a PubMed search and you'd probably find a study that says raw honey helps this condition. It's just pretty amazing. And fruit and, and, and eating fruit yeah. is, is okay. Yeah. yeah. In eating fruit. And, and you asked me to define whole foods is any food you get directly from a plant or directly from an animal without processing. I mean, I, if like removing the scales on a fish doesn't count as processing and that's fine. So yeah. And cooking is processing too. But when, what I mean is that you don't have additives and removal of fiber and that kind of stuff. So whole grains, lentils, um, vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, mushrooms, eggs, meat, fish. That's it. I don't think there's anything else. Great. You know, I just want to be clear on those definitions. The, yeah, the yeah. definitions. Yeah. I did want to say we talked about least restrictive diet and I thought Least restrictive is really good because I've just automatically Through thought education. about yeah. education, a least restrictive environment and least restrictive diet. And that's where it came from. So that's where I thought about that because it's been in my mind for a while that, I mean, like the question I get answered most is, should I take this out? Should I take that out? Um, 
So we're always trying to refine our goals to make sure that what is your goal? Um, sometimes when you get in the world of diets, it's easy to lose sight of what the goal is. So the, um, for me, with my son, the goal is that he's comfortable. He has that, which means there's no pain or discomfort in his body. And he has energy um, because he has some conditions that cause him to really tank in energy, generally runs low in energy. So those are the two things. And that his mind is clear and he doesn't have brain fog. So the East overgrowth that I described, for example, comes with the side effect of brain fog where like it's almost impossible to think straight. And maybe we've all experienced that at some point or the other, what a little bit of brain fog feels like. So these three things, energy, no pain, clarity of mind. If you can get that, you can get that through diet usually. So, I mean, there, there is, once you get there, I think find your stable spot, move on to something else. We've used the word constipation a few times in this conversation. I've heard it a lot when talking about Down syndrome and a commonality in in the guts of people with Down syndrome. But you could go the other way in, in the bowels that way too. And isn't that a sign as well of, of inflammation in the gut? Yeah, absolutely. Like diarrhea is that Yeah, what you mean? yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. I, actually, diarrhea is a bigger sign. Like bringing another term here is the difference between chronic and acute. So if you acute diarrhea is if you just like had food poisoning, that's, I mean, that's just your body st- getting stuff out. But chronic diarrhea is when your child has a tendency towards it or is like, this is the norm every day. That diarrhea is a, is a harder thing to work with. And I would definitely, if your child has chronic diarrhea, I would start with working with a medical practitioner. It's usually some kind of infection in the gut and uh, a higher level of inflammation and work on diet. So you, I feel like diet is always in the picture. I have a podcast on functional nutrition. Um, it's called Functional Nutrition and Learning for Kids. And I've interviewed many medical experts and experts in functional medicine and nutrition. Their area of focus is not the diet. Some of them it is, but many of them are working on different things. But one commonality I've, that has come through with everybody is nothing works if the diet isn't anti-inflammatory because food is the single most frequent intervention that your child has that you have, right? It's three times a day, four times a day, five times a day. No drug that you eat, there is nothing that we're putting in our body as frequently as food, not even learning, right? So food is literally the single most frequent input intervention in your body. And food can create inflammation or food can turn off inflammation. So if that is not addressed, everything that you do is on the outside. And that may work for some time, as we've seen with many therapies, they may work for a short time. But in the presence of persistent inflammation, because of every meal your child is eating, how is anything going to work unless we have a stable foundation? So almost every practitioner I've worked with has said that we need to get a basic anti-inflammatory diet, which is what I mentioned, which includes the blood sugar balance going and then not and then, I don't like the word and then, along with other things. I mean, there is no and then in our lives, right? We have to do things simultaneously. So, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned your podcast because we'll put that link on in the show notes okay. too, along Thank with you. your website so people can reach out to you. You want to say the name of your podcast again? My podcast is called Functional Nutrition and Learning for Kids which is basically what it sounds like. It's a combination of functional nutrition strategies for kids with Down syndrome and autism and functional learning strategies and what I call nonlinear education. So basically 
learning out of the box. It's all really great information because we've been experiencing with Liam just like a change, you know, changing his diet and also just a change in um, his what's the what's the best way to say poo his bowel movement his 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 movements and that was one thing that we noticed and. Yes, Stephen's spot on because there that's me as a mom again going, I'm not going to say anything because, you know, in my head, like about six months ago, his uh, movements kind of changed and became looser. And yeah, not um, all the time, not not all the time. But so I'm looking going, well, maybe it's because of the amount of fiber that he gets now, because for the most part, up until like a couple weeks ago, he was 75% gluten free because I'm gluten free. And again, we felt like you know, oh, I don't want to impede anybody with my dietary restrictions. So, you know, I don't want to limit them in any way. Gosh, as a parent, it's so hard to look at something and go, okay, there might be a problem here. Because there's a fear of, the truth is, is maybe it's, maybe there's something in the diet that we can just change, but which is most likely the situation. But there's that just fear of, do I want to ask you know, like, and, and not knowing information is the worst thing possible. And and then maybe you have, like in our case, we have two parents that, that are trying to put their input in, right? Like what, what could it be? Right. Because Lori was saying that uh, she sees like a loose bowel movement and thinks of, well, he had a lot of fiber yesterday. And in my mind, I'm thinking, yes, that could be a result, but also that could cause constipation having too much uh, fiber. So we're both kind of like, kind of guessing and throwing as a off. parent there it is again is that like um that's just what we do and i know i know i know having the information is so much better and using using what you have to get the right information so you can move forward in the right way that supports your child i know that's the best thing because otherwise we're just guessing yes because right. I, I know that but you know, it's a journey for me. It's still a journey and I'm still figuring it out. And, you know, in a year I'll go, Oh gosh, I should have, Like, you know, like I'll, I'll cringe at what I did. No, it's definitely a journey and there's, there's so much to learn. And I still think that there's, there's never enough to learn. Right. So it's the more you learn, the more kind of inadequate you feel in it's like, there's, there's just, there's just so much more, especially this is a constantly changing field, nutrition. I mean, one day paleo is the best diet. The next day ketogenic is the best diet. The next day vegetarian diets are the best. And I think that I have myself, as opposed to I feel education, I mean, I when I talk about education, there's a little bit actually more clarity. And even though that is a changing field too, nutrition, the the turnover of information, turnaround, whatever the word is, but um, is, is so rapid. It's like everybody's coming with a contradictory thing. So I have decided to kind of stick with frameworks instead of information. So in, in the sense that I'm actually developing a, right now I'm developing a framework on how to think about nutrition for kids with Down syndrome. For example, one of the things we know is that kids have a lot of oxidative stress. So what is oxidative stress? Oh, oxidative stress. Kind of, it's the opposite of antioxidants. And it's, it's, there's a process called oxidation, which basically means the loss of electrons. And oxidative stress is that there's a lot of oxidation going on in the body. For example, aging itself is, is caused, one of the reasons is increased oxidative stress. So, and um, it can cause inflammation. So we know that most kids with Down syndrome, you know, they have a lot of oxidative stress and the opposite of oxidative stress, or in other words, in order to 
balance that out, what we need is a lot of antioxidants in our body, and which is where the word comes from, the word antioxidants, which is basically to really simplify it, any brightly colored fruits and vegetables and spices. I think even if we stayed in that realm, we would be hitting a lot of antioxidants. So we need a higher dose of antioxidants in our children's diet than if they didn't have Down syndrome. So, so I'm, 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 I'm trying to make like four or five points that everybody, you can just like print out a sheet and see, did I get my antioxidants today? Let's say, did I get my three cups of colored fruits and veggies today? And a few other things so that we don't have to second guess each time and just look at it as a framework as, okay, so these are things that I need to think about. I, I want to talk about before we run out of time again, do we talk about what dysregulation is? Yeah. And children with disabilities often have sensory issues where they perceive the world differently, right? So dysregulation is the different senses are perceiving the world differently. So instead of all coming together to form one coherent picture of the world, there's a lack of coherence. And dysregulation can manifest as any mood. You, you might find your child laughing a lot. You may find a child crying a lot. You may find your child throwing so-called tantrums, um, a lot of anger, aggression. It's just that this feeling of coherence within the body, um, feeling stable and grounded when that is disrupted. That could be disrupted due to sensory issues and overwhelm, or it could be disrupted uh, due to internal, bio, internal inflammation or overgrowth of a bacteria or a virus or a fungus like yeast, because that's creating some chemicals that is messing with your ability to deal with the world correctly. So that's a really complicated definition. So to simplify it, it's this feeling of lack of coherence inside the body, lack of stability and groundedness that can manifest as emotions, as laughter, as anger, as rapid mood swings, as impulsivity, as hyperactivity. Let's talk about the diagnostic overshadowing. Yeah, diagnostic overshadowing is, and I first heard this term from Dr. Erica Pearson, but it's the process of attributing any symptom that a person is ha having to a diagnosis or the process of sweeping stuff under the rug of your diagnosis. For example, I went to the neurologist with Sid and said that Sid is not able to lift his hands. When I ask him to lift his hands above his head, he's not able to do that. And the answer was, oh, that's common in children with Down syndrome, which I actually think is quite false. I don't think, I think, I mean, there's so many kids that actually play basketball and stuff. You couldn't do that if you couldn't lift your hands, right? So in this case, it was outright false, but the neurologist had seen um, those particular kids that she saw had some um, you know, issues that they weren't able to follow certain instructions or at any rate, you know, there might've been a presumption of competence issue, who knows? But she thought that that was the case with all kids with Down syndrome. From that point on, every question that I'd asked the neurologist was answered with the same thing. She did not think it important to dig into any cause because Sid has Down syndrome. Now, the problem is Sid also has autism, which means now you have two diagnoses. So many doctors will, it's very hard for them to think beyond the diagnosis. What that means is that oftentimes when you're going to a doctor with a concern with their child, if the answer is that it is because they have Down syndrome, your child is constipated because they have Down syndrome, your child is constipated because they have autism. It doesn't mean anything. It's a circular argument that that's not even an answer. So, but does that mean my child deserves to stay constipated because they have Down syndrome? What is the, like, is, does any, you know, you, you see the issue here. I mean, when we're not doctors, we have to trust what doctors say. But when the answer is that because your child has Down syndrome or because your child has autism, 
we have to either find another doctor or figure out a way, explain to this doctor that what they're doing is diagnostic overshadowing and they need to look under the hood. I mean, could we ask what part of Down syndrome and autism causes constipation? Like, could we ask that? I mean, that like to me, because I remember, um, <laughs> Sophia's going to hate me. <laughs> like, I remember Sophia had a problem with this. I think going to the bathroom is a huge thing for all children because they don't know what it is. There might be fear there. There might be pain there. There might, there's so many things that go into it. And that's the, pro- that's, I think that's a challenge with talking to your doctor is like seeing that person of authority and some doctors wear their authority a little bit bolder than others, like not to be questioned, you know, and I would actually be happier with that response from a doctor than doing the diagnostic overshadowing, because I feel like that overshadowing and putting something in a box, it's, it's not done with a, this is because of um, his diagnosis. And this is what we need to do because of that. This is what we need to look yeah. into. If it was followed with that, just like, well, the like list. If I said that the whole system can be slower. So that can cause constipation. That can be, but that can be a what can we do to, to help your body or the child's body process the food more or get through the what system food more? Can we eliminate that pro- that is mm-hmm. easier to digest? And by the way, the anti-inflammatory diet is it's good for all humans because inflammation is the root really of, of so much illness. Especially anything that's chronic. If your child or you have a chronic disease, it's pretty well known at this point that a huge percent of most chronic disease is caused by silent inflammation. And um, so, yes, um, I think that is a really good conversation to have. So if you, because they have Down syndrome, so then the next question would be, so what about Down syndrome is causing that? And at the risk of giving you too many links, I have something called a constipation toolkit. I actually do want to share this link. It's functionalnutritionforkids.com slash constipation toolkit. It's a free ebook. It is specifically for kids with Down syndrome. And I often recommend that parents just print that out. There's five primary factors that can cause constipation and five secondary factors. And basically many of these are common. So what can you do about the low muscle tone in the gut. Um, a lot of children with Down syndrome have thyroid problems. Um, and I think that's actually a very huge percent of kids have thyroid problems. And low thyroid function can cause constipation. So these are some of the things in that toolkit. Just being a little bit informed and saying, so does my child need thyroid medication? There was a time when a lot of doctors would not address thyroid, um, hypothyroid in kids with Down syndrome because it's Down syndrome. So nowadays, that's I've, I've seen that there is a shift and people are actively prescribing medication or treating it as the case may be. And that's something too, um, Dr. Brian Scott Co has a Down Syndrome Clinic to you website where parents can go in and do an intake. And he's really great because he's from the Down Syndrome community and, and just getting even that recommendation or knowing to ask for that, because that just makes me so mad. We have to remember as a community that there is a lingering part of society that still hasn't caught on to equality. And we have to remember, I know, like you, you talk about thyroid and, and I know that that is a conversation that we've had and that people will just like not know much about, but will ask, it wasn't that long ago that our, our children were denied heart surgery. Absolutely. So it is okay to question a field that is still learning about our community. It's okay to get that information to then know that maybe that's not the best practitioner because 
I mean, isn't it best to know if we're working with someone who sees our child as equal or or not so we can make an educated decision? But I, I think that that's really important to remember that this is a journey and this is a this is really it feels like it's still kind of at the beginning of the conversation of equality and actually valuing our kids' life and actually seeing the potential there. And we are dealing sometimes with people who aren't assuming the competence and Mm -hmm. seeing the totality. And even with the best pediatricians or doctors, always go in and ask questions and push a little bit. Um, Just recently in Liam's yearly exam, it was time to do blood work and Liam was very healthy and I asked if we could do, we could just check the thyroid again because he has no thyroid issues, but I asked if that was going to be part of the blood work. She goes, well, I can do that. I wasn't going to. He, everything, the thyroid feels good and, you know, her neuro exam and everything. And But we did it and it was fine, but why, why not, right? And that was something that maybe maybe next time when she sees us again, she goes, yeah, you know, let's check that again. Like, because your doctor that you're going into may not, you know, probably isn't a Down syndrome specialist. And so we as a community have to help with that. I think more than finding people that are complete experts, 100 know everything about you, you just want to find people that are curious about your child in a respectful way where, um, because that the answers aren't hard to find. There's information. If you are a doctor and you're not an expert in Down syndrome, all you have to do is call somebody to find out what it is and you, because you already know what you're doing. I think more than expertise, I have come to value curiosity and, and uh, respect in a medical professional. One of the things I see a lot on the message boards is parents having challenges with their children with poo. And there's a there's an exasperation there because it's that overshadowing where parents feel like this is just because their child has Down syndrome. It's because of the diagnosis, um, just behaviors. And uh, this is something that every child experiences. I think that it's important that we move from these diagnoses because um, as, as a diagnosis, Down syndrome means some things, but it also doesn't mean a lot of what we think it means. These labels have become so heavy, autism and Down syndrome, but the truth is there so many kids these days have gut issues. So I think we, we need to start thinking, when I say we need to start thinking in frameworks, that's what I mean. Going forward, the labels of Down syndrome and autism in this context don't mean as much as frameworks of looking at inflammation. Do I have inflammation? Does my child have gut issues? Does my child have muscle tone issues? So if you kind of look under the hood and drop the label, there are specific things you can address, but there's nothing you can do about Down syndrome, but you can do so much about inflammation. You can do so much about sensory dysregulation. You know, there is so much you can do Though that's what I mean when I say looking at frameworks, um, because in this context, the la- the diagnoses are useless. Do you get what I'm saying? Did I think, I yeah. I th- what I feel happens in our communities is a behavior that happens to all children, neurotypical uh, alike. We attribute it to a diagnosis, and then it makes us feel helpless. It carries a weight that doesn't belong there. And there's so many emotions that we feel as parents instead of being empowered by just the information. And I think that's a shift. That's a total shift. That's a shift like what we're going to assume competence. It's a shift in the label of 
an extra chromosome, the label of autism, those mean certain things. And we're more empowered to know what those mean. And then to forge our path with the knowledge of what those don't mean and know that most of our progress has really come from this community propelling that progress, propelling the education, the equality. And I would love to see, like, even if we can just acknowledge that that overshadowing is there and that just because the lack of knowledge causes it, that we're not helpless to it. And one thought came to me is that a lot of it has to do with the language we use in our head. Right now we're saying my child has Down syndrome, so he's throwing tantrums, so he is stubborn. But if we move that to my child is Down syndrome and he is stubborn, then they are two independent observations. And then you can take one observation and be curious about, well, my child is Down syndrome, that's a fact. Forget about it. I'm not worried about that right now. My child is stubborn. What's going on? And if we move from the so and the cause and effect situation to this is true and this is true. so just separating those two observations. My child is autistic and he has temper tantrums every day, things like that. Our child's diagnosis isn't the entirety of the child. Exactly. Not every question we have about the child goes back to that diagnosis. They're children. They're humans. They have things we need to correct, Mm -hmm. things that we need to support support and and help to see these strengths like anybody. And this used to happen to women not long ago. We know that, mm-hmm. um, you know, words like what is, isn't the word for the uterus come from like hysterectomy has something to do with being hysterical, right? I yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes. so, yeah. So, <laughs> and I think the parallel of the different inequalities, I don't, I don't think it's something that we see right away, but you could see it's on that same path. Like one day we're going to look back and go, oh my goodness, people with Down syndrome were institutionalized. Oh my goodness, people with Down syndrome were denied an education. They were given jobs without money and paid with food. And just, I always love talking to you because it opens my mind. Like the, I love least restrictive diet, least restrictive education. It's what we want as humans in our life. Yeah. Maybe one of the things I want to end with is saying that uh, if this also comes down to presuming competence and assuming intelligence Because when you know that your child is capable of fully functioning, then it becomes our duty to make sure that a bodily discomfort is not preventing them from functioning to the best of their capacity. And when I say duty, I don't mean that you need to run from practitioner to practitioner. I just mean that it is our duty to not take it as part of the diagnosis, to just be curious about it. That's all I mean. It's when I say I'm not not asking people to go on a doctor hunt or a nutritionist and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if your neurotypical child were uncomfortable, what would you do if they were if they were struggling with a certain area of their life with respect to their body, comfort, whatever you would do, just translate that to us. That's it, isn't it? Yeah. That's it. That's something that we mention in all other realms and sometimes I think with the health because it's one of the things that they get us with right at birth. I think with the health we forget that if this was your neurotypical child, just treat it just like that, even like in, in your heart and in your mind and, and how we see it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Vaish, so much for joining us again. It was so great talking to you and with so much information about nutrition. Thank you both. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm happy to have been invited back on this podcast. Thank you. 
Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. From the top.